This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Welcome to the Liverpool.com podcast, which has caught me off guard. Um, this week, it's Dan Morgan, Joel Rabinovitz and Blood Red's Matt Addison. Uh, we're here to take you through another yo-yo week for Liverpool, um, in which they've managed to come off the back of a Champions League last 16 win. We're defeating the Merseyside derby for the first time since 1999. I repeat, since the first time since 1999 at home against Everton. Um, we're not going to dwell too much on that because it's been done to death and God, whoever Liverpool persuasion wants to talk about that again. Uh, gents, hope you're both well. A couple of things I do want to go through with you um, in terms of a general mood and a general feeling. And Matt, I'll start with you. Um, and I want to talk about roadmaps. Roadmaps are in vogue this week. Roadmaps are are the thing that many are holding on to. So I've decided we shall create our own roadmap uh, and we shall hang on to it with dear life um, in terms of what gets Liverpool out of their current crisis and what is their roadmap to uh, a world in which they can win a game at Anfield, for example. And there's obvious ones in there, getting players back, obviously getting fans back, even more so. Um, but I think that maybe how they eventually, within the chaos and within the turbulence, rediscover themselves in terms of identity might just be the most crucial of all when it comes to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's just about small steps at, at the moment, isn't it? I think the weekend's game actually is is a big one for Liverpool. I think we know how Sheffield United are going to set up. They're going to set up pretty much the same as what the template has been to, to stop Liverpool of late. I think that the difference is that Sheffield United are not as good at doing that as what Burnley are. They're not as good at, at doing that as what Everton are. They don't have... Mm the threats necessarily on the counter. So for me, in terms of you know what you say there, in terms of finding Liverpool's identity again, I think actually Sheffield United is a, a big, big chance to be able to do that because if they can sort of change the narrative and, and sort of score one or two goals against the team who are going to sit in, who are going to make it difficult and, and try and counter-attack, that sort of changes the outlook. It gives Liverpool a bit more confidence. Then you can start to, to look and try and, and use what they've done in that game for, for potentially more trickier fixtures to come down the line. Now, that's not to say it's it's going to be easy, far from it, for, for Liverpool in this sort of form that they're in. It's about sort of edging themselves closer to what they usually do and, and the way that they usually play. But I suppose the, the big thing for me is that it's Sheffield United this weekend. That's a, a big opportunity. I suppose at the same time, you could say if, if it goes the same way for Liverpool, it sort of works in the reverse in that if they don't manage to score from open play, then you think, well, when is it going to happen? But for me, it's a, it's a huge opportunity to start that roadmap starting this Sunday. It's, it's interesting, Joel, isn't it, that we're all sort of looking now to next season and it's sort of, right, let's just see next season where we are and let's just, let's just get to a world that resembles some kind of normality for us in terms of watching Liverpool again. Um, but arguably, you know, the facts remain that there's three months left of this season um, and Liverpool have to find a way to put the wheel back on somehow. You know, I mean, if they carry on like this, we're going to be in the relegation scrap come the last couple of day, games of the season. So, I mean, let's 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 not rem- let's not forget the fact that we have to arrest this particular decline. And you know, one of your staple pieces on Liverpool.com is is what Liverpool did and Jurgen Klopp did in, in 2016-17, and how he sort of charted that roadmap 
to Liverpool getting fourth place. And one of the things that that I remember distinctly from that season was he made it really ugly to, at times. He made it really attritional to the point where Liverpool were was scrappy and they were they were closing out games in the in the manner in which is being dictated to them now. They would score early. Watford, for example, remember Emery Chan's incredible overhead kick. Um and they just closed the game out. And has it surprised you that they've not sort of looked to change things as dramatically as that this early? You know, they, is it is it a is it a case that they've maybe been too weathered and too loyal to the previous system of the past two years? I think so. I think when we come to look back on on this this season and what went wrong, I think a lot of a lot of the frustration in recent weeks is that they still it's admirable in a way that they've tried to keep playing the same style of football and, and stick to the principles that have got them to where they are. But they've basically been trying to play the same system without the crucial component parts that make up that system. Um, and I think that's why we've all basically seen what feels like the same football match play itself over and over and over again over the last couple of months where you, you know how it's going to go. They're, Liverpool enjoy large periods of possession, sustained pressure high up the pitch, but it's not meaningful pressure in terms of actually creating clear-cut chances or taking the chances when they do come. It's kind of sterile domination and then invariably they get hit by a sucker punch at the other end, which is often the opposition's first big chance of a game goes in. And when that goal does go in, like the Everton won the other day after two minutes, Southampton scored after two minutes, Brighton's I think was early in the second half. You never feel like Liverpool have a gear to go up to change it. And I think that's what's been really tedious is, you know, kind of the patterns of how they're going to move the ball. They're going to shift it wide to the fullbacks, sling crosses into the box, gets cleared. They do the same thing again. Um, and yet I agree back in that 16-17 season, the injury crisis wasn't quite as severe. It was nowhere near as severe as it is now, but they were missing big players. Henderson was out for the last few months of that season. They lost Mane uh, in the derby, funnily enough, that season. And they had to change the way they played to get over the line for top four. Um, and you referenced the Watford game there. There were plenty of other ones. Really horrible, ugly games to watch. West Brom away was another one. 1-0 one for Mino mm-hmm. Hedda. Um, everyone remembers Stoke away. Um, there's a couple of others that I probably missed there. But games where Liverpool, Klopp was a lot more pragmatic than we'd seen up until that point. He was playing teams like Emre Chan and, and Lucas Lever were playing almost every game in that run. And it wasn't free-flowing attacking football. Liverpool weren't scoring loads of goals, but they had a very defined approach um, and then got to the last couple of games against West Ham and Middlesbrough, cut loose, the goals came back and they got themselves there in the end. And I think what I'd quite like to see now um, in these last, is it 13 games left? I think it is now. It's just Liverpool commit to a really clear approach, whether that be, like you said, trying to kind of grind these games out 1-0 and hold on and be just as, as robust and solid as they can defensively or alternatively, just go for it more in attack like they did in, in 2017-18 where you, you accept that you're going to leave a few more holes at the back, but you go a bit more gung-ho and start pressing teams like crazy to try and score goals, get yourself 1-0 up in front um, and try and build on that. Um, because I think my sense is that in recent weeks, it's just been a halfway house where they've been trying to do what they ideally would do with all the players fit, but they haven't been fit. And it's just, it's all been a bit nothingy. So I think going forward, if they can find a way to just, yeah, like I said, either either go more all out in attack or become as robust as they can defensively. Um, and hopefully that season's over the line in these last 13. 
if, if Jürgen Klopp sat here though, Joel, does he not say, well, I could do that in 16-17 because I've got Emre Can and Lucas Leiva and I can basically just mm. sit them in front of two centre-backs. Have they got the personnel now to do that is what, what I would worry about in terms of midfield. You know, it, it, it might be that they, the, the obvious answer is to, like you say, try and, and embody the, the, the spirit of the season after whereby, you know, they, they bank on scoring four if the opposition scores three. And, the problem with that is that stylistically, now the blueprint to play Liverpool is that you sit in and frustrate. So you're not going to get teams willing to score three. They only want to score one. Um, and it just feels like, it just feels like, yeah, we have, you know, in, in so many ways moved on from, from those seasons. Um, but the the personnel and, and the injury issues that the squad faces now, it doesn't really leave you with an obvious answer, does it? No, I don't think so. In terms of a defensive approach that they, they used in those few months in 16-17, um, as you mentioned there, with, with players like Chan and Lucas, there's not really a comparable um, scenario now, I don't think, with the midfielders we have, especially with Henderson out. Um, Fabinho just coming back. I think that the more likely and the more feasible one is to try and just go a bit more attack heavy um, and whether that means a switch to kind of a system we saw earlier in the season Klopp played a few few games of 4-2-3-1 or almost a 4-2-4 with a kind of flat four-man front line at times um, with Jota in there seen the pitch, pictures from training today it looks like he's back in, in full team training so you'd imagine he'd be at least on the bench for the weekend um, Cater's another one again who's kind of dropped off everyone's radar in, in the past couple of months but has played in a lot of Liverpool's best attacking performances this season. Um, and if, if Liverpool can find a way to get those players on the pitch, for example, we haven't seen a single game this season with Thiago and Keita on the pitch at the same time. For instance, we haven't seen Thiago and Jota on the pitch at the same time. So there's these sort of combinations and these players that you'd like to see, well, I'd certainly would like to see more of um, together. And Whether that's a change of shape or he just takes one of the main front three out and decides that they just haven't been performing well enough recently and that he wants to throw Jota back in. Um, I would also just add there, I think we need to be a bit careful and not kind of presume that just because Jota's fit again, he comes straight back in and solves all the problems because I don't think he will. Not least because he doesn't have match sharpness. He's been out for, was it nearly three months now um, since the Michelin game? Um, so he has obviously will bring quality and variety back to the team. But I think just to kind of measure our expectations with him, it might be a while before we see the kind of the pre-injury version of Jota again. One of the players who has been uh, mentioned quite frequently, Matt, about when you talk about Liverpool's sort of midfield imbalance, if you like, is is Thiago Alcantara. Um, I think in many ways, it's fair to say he's the embodiment of, of things gone wrong this season in the sense that he was clearly not bought for... The, the job he's ended up doing uh, and by virtue of that his ability which is clear for all to see hasn't fully been able to blossom um, and he's he's basically been warring through if you like attritionally in a team and set up and scenario and situation that he, he wasn't prepared for and I, I don't think Liverpool were prepared for him buying him I guess what I'm what I'm coming to with Thiago is that you know it, it's very clear that Liverpool wanted him in a Liverpool side that was winning games of football and they wanted him as an additional way in which they could hear teams despite the fact that they'd just finished two seasons plus the right side of 90, 94 points and 
you know, when that doesn't happen, is it a case with him, like it is with the team, that a lot of this now we have to just say, okay, we do what we can with it this season, but next season we look at it as that's when the, the plan comes back around and we get to look at it again properly. Yeah, I think so. I think the the whole point of Thiago and Jota as well was to take that next evolution at Liverpool. That's you know something that we've talked about plenty of times this season. It's about taking you to the next level and, and finding a new solution. But it's just not fair to, to assess what Thiago is for Liverpool and what he will be until he's got the players around him. I, I think you only have to, to look at one or two other players in this Liverpool team. They're not quite themselves because they haven't got you know, Van Dijk and Gomez behind them. They haven't got you know, the options in midfield. He's having to play a lot of football, as you say, in a position where it wasn't really the idea. That wasn't the, the point of bringing him in, wasn't to, to put him on that side of the pitch in, in terms of being in front of, of Trent and offering him you know, the, the protection or, or limited protection that he's not been, been able to do because that just isn't his job. It, it never has been. So for me, yeah, obviously you, you look ahead to next season uh, with Thiago and, and with the whole of, of Liverpool, really, to see that the best of Liverpool, you have to look ahead to next season. You have to look forward to, to players coming back, to seeing a, a more normal season in terms of injuries, hopefully, next season for, for Liverpool. And I think that's when we see the true value and, and the, the true sort of purpose of, of what Thiago was brought into this team to do. But at the same time, there's there's a bit of a, a worry, I think, for me in terms of just looking ahead to next season in terms of, of, of just almost writing it off at this point, which I think a, a fair few people have, have sort of tried to do after the Everton game. I mean, Liverpool have to get into the Champions League. The, the rest of this season for me is is massively, massively important. You don't want to, to, to have all of these players back, to have Thiago back and, and have the best version of Thiago, but then be playing in, in the Europa League next season. I mean, the next sort of three months for, for Liverpool, the remainder of this season, the, the 13 games, as Joel says, in the Premier League and, you know, the, the remainder of, of the Champions League as well. I mean, this is, is hugely important, I think, for, for the whole project for, for Thiago's time at Liverpool. If if Liverpool bought Thiago last summer to, to take them to the next level and they've been stopped doing so this season by injuries, I mean, if they're not in the Champions League next season, then I would probably argue he'd probably be, be stopped from taking them to the next level again because you absolutely have to be in that top four. You have to be in the best European competition. Just on him, Matt, one of the things that people are often frustrated about is his tackling uh, and his his sort of rash uh, nature when it comes to things like you know getting booked within two minutes against Manchester City. Um, if I have if I've had one criticism of him because I've generally largely gave him a pass this season and I've been generally largely encouraged by a lot of things um, because he's a world class footballer. Why wouldn't you? But if I have one one sort of thing that's niggled at me it was he was atrocious in the first three minutes against Everton um, just as a side note he looked like the most inexperienced player on the pitch uh, and that for me is sometimes a little bit head scratching but it could be a case that he's just trying too much and trying too hard again human completely understandable but one thing I want to pick it up on is on that on that notion of, of his tackling and his his ability to sort of fly into things and be reckless He's in a percentile. He's 67% for pressure regains this season. Counter-pressure regains, 96%. Tackling and inter- possession adjusted tackles and interceptions, 99%. That's over the course of a season and that's from stats bomb. Now, that's raw numbers. But one of the things that stands out to me is he's actually very, very good when Liverpool are on top. 
at reading the game and stopping teams getting out. And it doesn't even have to be a tackle. You can just read where a pass is going. You can pick up a loose ball really well. And I think it's really present against Leicester away. Leicester cannot get out against Liverpool for, for that for that first hour. And Thiago's massively, massively a, bit, a big factor in that. In that he, he, he seems on top of everything. And, you know, we, we seem to look at him a lot in terms of what he does on the ball, the way in which he orchestrates, the way in which he can pass through lines and, and give Liverpool another alternative that way. But when we look at what he was signed for and we envisage these game scenarios and these simulations playing out of Liverpool constantly being on top, teams struggling to get out of their own box, teams trying to build attacks if they're leaving two up, for example, I think you've seen enough in glimpses to say that this is why he will be and was the right addition for what Liverpool were anticipating not in a season like this where it's just gone completely off the scale with a mass injury crisis. Yeah, 100%. I think the, the tackling thing has been sort of overstated. I think he doesn't offer the best defensive cover in terms of being able to, to cover the ground and, and that sort of thing. And I'm sure if you had Henderson just in front of Trent, we'd probably see a better version of Trent. But I mean, in, in terms of that defensive thing, it, it almost goes back to what Joel was saying before in terms of sustaining that pressure. I think if you've got Thiago, Fabinho and, and Henderson in a midfield or, or whatever combination it might be, Liverpool are just that bit further up the pitch. Maybe Thiago's doing those tackles 10 yards, 15 yards further forward. And that point then is, is then he can bring the ball into one of those front three. And they're in a completely different position. They're higher up the pitch. It gives less time for, for opposition defensives to, to, to get into shape and, and sit in as deep as what they have been. So again, it, we will see a better version of Thiago next season. There's enough to suggest, I mean, that there was already enough to suggest before he even kicked a ball for Liverpool that he was good enough to, to come in and, and do that job. And, you know, I, I still think probably, you know, in terms of, of what Liverpool brought him in for, I think they were probably seeing him long-term as a, a Genie Wijnaldum replacement. I think that's sort of been slightly forgotten because Wijnaldum's had to play virtually every single 90 minutes throughout this season and has become a hugely valuable player for, for Liverpool to have this season. But, you know, when he when he came in, there was that question, wasn't there, of if Thiago comes in, does that mean that, that Wijnaldum's going? I think... No, it, it didn't last summer. Potentially next summer, it, it could have been the plan to just have the, the two of them, have them sort of integrated into to the season for, for this, uh, into the team, sorry, for, for this season. And, and long-term, Thiago can can do that sort of job. So, yeah, I think what what we've seen from Thiago is is good, but you're never, ever going to see the, the full package and, and the full reason emerge. You, you see it in glimpses, as you say, but, but next season, I think, is is the one really but as i say you have to be in the the champions league for for him to to sort of show his absolute peak qualities and it would be a huge disappointment even the circumstances being the case for for that not to happen i think that that corresponding everton fixtures all the way has given us the the best glimpse and that day sort of central to left of of a midfield three with fabino and henderson i wonder whether that plan that, that that I've referenced in the last couple of questions to Matt is is that ultimately they've looked at it and gone well this guy in Trent can be the main source of service to the front three from those areas because if you've got Henderson right he can run and he can cover those areas in which he does and he links Trent and Salah really well and then Robertson as a fullback as we know is a lot more byline than, than Alexander-Arnold 
So those areas against Leicester, like a reference, sort of inside your own half, halfway line-ish, maybe 20 yards inside the opposition half, that that sort of axis either side of both Thiago and Trent picking the ball up there and then the quality they've got on the ball, you know, I, I think you get to see, and you get to see from that game at Goodison where Liverpool are just arguably for, for an hour putting in one of the best performances of the season and one of the most balanced performances of the season. Um, God knows how they don't come out to win that game, but you get to see the the balance and the way in which it works. And I, I wonder whether the 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 Thiago plan, if you like, does centre a lot more around the fullbacks than we realise. But to to work that, you need you know you need fit centre backs, you need first choice centre midfielders. We we need all the things that we already know. I think that Everton game was the plan um, for Thiago this season, kind of in, in a 90-minute nutshell, really. If, in fact, this allowed Henderson goal in stoppage time. It's probably, if you wanted a, a kind of 10-second snapshot of why they bought Thiago, it was literally that goal. He picks the ball up in a kind of central left area, like you said, plays a pass, which, let's be honest, probably no other midfielder in Liverpool squad would play. Look in the opposite direction, plays it between the lines into Mane, he cuts it back, Henderson scores. Um, and that's exactly the kind of moment they brought Thiago for to, to pick those opportunities from central areas and add the variety so that Liverpool's creativity isn't solely on the fullbacks. Um, and he was doing that in that game. I thought that the interplay between him, Mane, and Robertson down that left hand side was so encouraging. Henderson, Trent, and Salah, as we know, is a really effective sort of triangle on the right hand side. And it just had such a lovely balance. I thought that midfield three, the best probably since Mascherano, Gerard, and Alonso, I'd go back that far. And I think that probably was what Klopp was looking to build around this season was Fabinho, Henderson, Thiago, and then probably Wijnaldum, Jones, Milner, Cater, if he's fit, filling the gaps in between. Um, and they all had very specific roles, Fabinho anchoring, dropping in between the centre-backs. Henderson, I've always thought that kind of right-sided, box-to-box role is is his best fit. And Thiago looked really good in that left-hand side. And the massive shame, the Van Dijk injury, obviously, is the one people will reference most from that game. But the huge shame is that Liverpool lost basically two-thirds. If we take that as as our best midfield this season with everyone fit, they lost two-thirds of that instantly that day because Fabinho had to be dragged back into defence. They lost Thiago for two and a half months. And then Henderson was left doing a different job as well. And since that game, I think I'm right in saying Thiago has not played a single or he's not started a single game in midfield with either Fabinho or Henderson. And he got half an hour... Um, when he came back off the bench against Newcastle with Henderson. But other than that, Thiago, since Thiago's come back into the team, he's either been playing in front of Henderson or Fabinho, or one of them's been out injured, or, or now both are injured, and Fabinho's on his way back. So we've just never been able to see what the plan was other than that one game, which, as you say, it was so tantalising. And you could really see a scenario thereafter where Liverpool built on that platform. And, and instead, it's just been such a mishmash of, of different roles for him. Um and the fact that he he missed, I think the other thing doesn't really get mentioned with Thiago. Everyone talks about style and, and tactical fit, but he basically he didn't have pre-season Liverpool, so he he came in off the back of quite a short break after the Champions League final with Bayern, and then by the time he's actually come back into the Liverpool team halfway through this season, he's missed his entire kind of bedding in period where he was meant to get up to speed physically. So not only is he having to kind of learn an unfamiliar role which he wasn't bought for. He's also doing that without any of the kind of physical conditioning that you need to play in this Liverpool team in a new league. So really kind of every possible circumstance has gone against him. And I don't think he will until next season 
see what what the real Thiago looks like. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. I think for now, Matt, we have to look at in the in the immediacy what's what continues to go wrong, and and I think it's evident again that Liverpool get themselves into positions whereby you know the, the, there is sort of a real good chance before the chance type of scenario where the, the trigger can either be pulled or you know it can it, it is done and it's not done with any real conviction. And Roberto Firmino's come in for a lot of uh, criticism in that respect over the past week. But, I mean, there's a piece Joel wrote on Liverpool.com, which we'll, we'll speak about throughout this segment. And, uh, and I think it's important in the sense that you are seeing scenarios where, whereby, you know, TV cameras aren't going back to them because they're not clear-cut chances. But when you look at them again in isolation, there's a real opportunity for either, you know, a spot to be picked or a layoff that is just there and doesn't happen and doesn't be executed and again it comes down to decision making and again it comes down to the fact that these Liverpool players are uh, doing things now which are a split second longer but by virtue of that it's it's taken away the opportunity and, and it's it's in such stark contrast to what we came to expect from them when they've played with confidence like they have for the last two, three years especially in the front line. Yeah, I think confidence is is the word. I think that's that's the thing, especially with Roberto Firmino. There was a couple of chances against Everton where you just thought, you know, you could hit that maybe in, in two touches or, or maybe even first time and he ends up taking three, four and, and suddenly that chance is gone. So, yeah, Firmino is is the, the biggest of the, the front three in terms of, of that. I think Sadio Mane has, has quietly you know, sort of struggled in that regard as well. He's not getting the same numbers. You know, Mohamed Salah is, is absolutely carrying the, the front three in terms of, of goals and, and sort of dragging them forward in, in that regard across the, the entirety of this season. And I think almost Sadio Mane has been able to to get away with it a little bit. We've not really noticed it as much because you've got, you know, Salah popping up with goals. You've got obviously injuries and, and other things taking the, the forefront of, of everyone's thoughts throughout the season. But you know, I think I'm right in saying that, that Mane and, and Firmino are two of the top three for the, the worst um, returns in terms of actual goals compared to their expected goals across the Premier League. I think the other one, weirdly, is Kevin De Bruyne in the top three. But, you know, those for those two players to, to be in that, I think that just sort of underlines the, the fact that they're not converting the chances that they get. It's not necessarily um, a problem in terms of, of the creation. It's, it's in terms of, of converting and you know, Mohamed Salah has already got more goals than he got last season. I don't think you can can really blame him. I think there was one chance where he probably should have done a little bit better against Everton. But if you can sort of give a free pass to, to any of them at, at the moment, it is him. It's it's really, really strange for me that the fact that Mane and Firmino have, have both dropped off at, at the same sort of time is is a big frustration for Liverpool. I think you know they, they both obviously offer a lot more than just goals, but... I think that there is a, a bit of pressure on, on both of them. I know Joel said before there's a bit of pressure on Diogo Jota as well, I think. But, you know, even once Jota is back, maybe that will help both Mane and Firmino. But I think there's there's more pressure on, on Mane and, and Firmino to, to step up and, and help Jota rather than the other way around for me. I, I wonder how much of that is is present, Joel. You know, we talked, Matt talked about a mental block. I, I wonder whether it's a sort of mental... Um, a mental replay for the front three in many many respects. They spent three seasons, the best part of, getting chance after chance, expecting chances to come in games. And when we're winning, 
And when we were winning and when we went sort of 26 out of 27 or whatever it was last season unbeaten, you know, it was the whole, oh, that one didn't come off and everyone was having a bit of a laugh about it. Suddenly when you're getting beat and suddenly when you need goals, it's not a very funny issue anymore. And it's not one that you can just say, oh, the next one will come. And, uh, you know, we're all having tons of fun here. It then becomes a pressure cooker. And it then becomes that when that wrong mistake is made and when the teammate isn't slid in or when they've taken the wrong option in the shot, that it compounds and it becomes a thing that is then indicative of confidence. And I wonder, I just wonder with Matt Reference and Jota there, I wonder whether whether Jota's start to life at Liverpool, the way, the manner in which it was so good was was encapsulated by the fact that he was new. And that he was getting these chances and he was he was almost like a kid in the sweet shop because he wasn't used to it from a Wolves point of view. You know, it was it was a case that he's he's come to Liverpool and all of a sudden, you know, his chance conversion rate, his expected goals, the manner in which he's just finding himself in in those pockets of space when he's making a run, he's getting the ball. It's it becomes addictive, whereby again, not to not to downplay the impact of of the fact that Liverpool have got currently the, the Premier League top scorer still in Mohamed Salah, no matter what, it's it's maybe just a little bit more, um, a little bit maybe more used to from from the front three, and that they will get the chances, and that the, the next chance will always come. Right now, they need to score the first chance they get, basically. Yeah, I mean, Jota came from a Wolves team which was probably creating in one clear cut chance a game, if that, maybe one clear cut chance every other game. Um, into a Liverpool team where he's getting multiple ones every time he went out on the pitch. And I think to put some context around kind of Jota's impact and relative to what Matt's talking about with Mane and Firmino's drop-off this season, Jota's on, on, he was on nine, well, he is on nine goals all competitions before he got injured. Uh, if you take, I think Mane's on 11, but if you take away the two goals he scores against Villa's kids in the FA Cup, which I think is kind of fair to do, he's effectively on the same amount of goals as Jota having played Pretty much every single game since Jota got out injured, he's still not gone past him. And Firmino's on six. And I know, again, they do lots of other stuff in the team that's not to do with scoring goals, create chances, pressing, winning the ball. But ultimately, their their end product does matter. And it has been well below, not just well below their previous standards, but well below reference the expected goals there. You got to look early and Firmino's on something like 10 expected goals in the league. He scored six. Mane's on, I think, nine and a half expected and he's on seven. Uh, and Mane last couple of seasons had massively overperformed against his, his underlying numbers. So he's he's gone from one of the kind of best finishers in terms of efficiency in the league to kind of one of the least efficient finishers, which is a huge drop off from him. And I do think it's gone a little bit under the radar. Um, I think in general with, with the front three, you know, I'm writing a piece today about this exact thing, but this is by the end of this season, it'll be the fourth complete season they played together. Uh, as a trio and if you look back over kind of history at the best the best front threes of all time really in any team um Barcelona had various incarnations involving Messi and and two others there's obviously United had Tevez Ronaldo and Rooney there's the Benzema Ronaldo and Bale and none of these really sort of stayed in a peak longer than two three seasons for at a push so I think what we're seeing partly is a result of the, the current crisis and confidence as a result of Liverpool's form and the injuries and everything. Um, but I think also is a difficult realisation to come to, but these things do kind of have a limited shelf life. And I think that Liverpool probably realised that last summer, hence why they were prepared to spend 40 plus million on a player like Jota, because they saw that 
at some stage within the next couple of seasons, they're going to have to kind of evolve this front three. You can't just keep asking him to go every single week and play the same really demanding high intensity roles. And Jota was perfect for that. He was doing, he was solving the exact problem that they pinpointed in the summer window. And it's a huge shame that we haven't seen that. And, and hopefully kind of within the next few weeks and moving into next season, we do get to see him sort of become the regular that he, he was at the time he got injured. But I think, yeah, in terms of go back to the original starting point of this conversation, a lot of the, the narrative around Liverpool recently is obviously focused on the injuries and it keeps getting said that they're not creating enough chances. And I generally agree that they, they should be creating more and that they are only kind of making a few per game. But the problem is that because they're not taking them, it's giving opposition teams constant hope and confidence and a platform to build on in games. And all, all it takes is any one of these scenarios in, in the piece that you you mentioned that I did for the site earlier in the week. Um, I went back over all these games in this post-Christmas run at the kind of scenarios, not necessarily clear-cut shooting chances, but chances to play a pass, which would then lead to a clear-cut chance. And the amount of times Liverpool are getting these fairly basic decisions wrong um, is staggering, really. And it only takes one of them to go right at nil-nil for the game to just completely change thereafter because then they, the pressure's off, they're 1-0 up and they can build the opposition has to come out, the more spaces open up. And we're just not seeing that. And I think that's, you see it every single game at the moment, every time they do miss a chance or mess up one of those attacks, it sticks with them because they know that they're not necessarily going to get that many more. And there's a big kind of big hole at the back, basically, which is prone to being exploited. So every single miss, unlike last season, where they knew it would keep on coming. Now it's like every single one they do is a massive blow because they might not get another one. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I, I wanted to touch on, Matt, and I sent some data over for this earlier, uh, was was game states from, from this season to last in particular. Um, there was some data around expected goals and, and where in which Liverpool were scoring from. But what really interested me was game states. And, and you look at 1920 um, and you look at the XG from losing positions, it's 4.54, Liverpool score four goals. This season is 8.9 expected. Liverpool score four. Okay, that's that's you can only sort of bracket that as similar. Um, winning and drawing though is is what looked to me to be the outlier. So last season, Liverpool's xG from winning positions was 28.87, and they scored 27 goals. Um, this season, from winning positions, 13.56 and 17 goals. Okay, we have to caveat that with they've been winning less. But in winning positions, less uh, drawing as well. Uh, sorry, shots as well are down from winning positions from 210 to 108. So that's over 100 shots. And then expected goals from drawing positions in games. Uh, 1920, the expected goal rate is 14.96 from 130 shots. And they score 24 of those. This season, the expected goal rate from drawing positions twenty point nine four, uh, and that's from one hundred and ninety two shots, and that's yielded eighteen goals. Now, firstly, this tells you a couple of things to me. It says that the eye test that you've seen with Liverpool this season that a they've not been ruthless enough at one nil, or from a leaving position, is corroborated, and I think that's fair. Um, and also that maybe. 
last season when they were so comfortable in their own skin that uh, a game state of drawing a game was a lot more beneficial to them than it is this season. Uh, and maybe the, the the narrative in the last few weeks has changed in which Liverpool now from a drawing position tend to get a lot more frustrated, tend to get uh, a lot more desperate as games go on and are up against oppositions who ultimately back themselves in the last quarter of the games more than Liverpool do. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them is a very unmathematical way of looking at it, is just to say that last season there was a lot of, of late goals. There was a lot of moments where yeah. you knew you knew with 10 minutes left, if it was one each, you knew Liverpool were going to score and Liverpool knew they were going to score as well. And I think at the moment, it, it just never really feels like Liverpool are going to get in. I mean, Richarlison's goal last weekend came very early, but I think a, a lot of people probably felt that that was the winning goal at that point. It, it didn't yeah. really feel like Liverpool, the way it's going at the moment, we're ever going to come back. And I think that is is reflected in those numbers. It, it's partly, I think, a, a mentality thing. It's a case of they just haven't come back and had a late winner or a late equaliser for so long. It's it's getting back into that habit. And the other thing as well to, to explain it, I think, is is that relentlessness. I think even you know when Liverpool were, were a goal down or, or were drawing last season, you just saw wave after wave of attack. They kept creating chances and, and kept sort of that fluidity in, in the way that they attack. Liverpool don't really have that this season. We've explained, you know, why that is. They don't have the, the midfielders that they'd want to win the ball high up the pitch. They don't have the same controlling games. They don't have fans. Obviously, that has um, an impact in that as well. I think, you know, if, if Everton were to go one nil up with fans in the ground, it's a completely different game, of course, isn't it? And, and in those big games, there's a, enough of those big games across the course of a season for those to, to really add up. So, yeah, it's the the numbers. I think particularly when Liverpool go behind or, or drawing, they as as you say, they they make complete sense just from from the eye test. You you never really feel like it. You never really feel like it's it's relentless or or it's going to happen at some point. And I suppose it's not just it's not just Liverpool's players that will feel like that. It's it's the opponents as well, isn't it? If at the moment you're sat as a, a centre back in in a team that's playing against Liverpool, you probably feel relatively comfortable, you feel like there's there's enough evidence to suggest that you can go on and, and get something from a game. Whereas probably last season, if you were coming to Anfield, you thought, well, if we lose by a couple of goals, that's that's probably a decent result. Again, it's back to the knock-ons, Joel, isn't it? You know, it's non-penalty set pieces, for example, is another really good and interesting thing to look at in this, in that the XG for both over the last two seasons is similar, 6.61 and 6.34. Shots, 99 in 1920 to 80 this season, which could end, to, end up tallying up. But the difference is there's there's another six goals. There's 12 goals last season. There's currently six. And, you know, you think of some of those goals like Sadio Mane's at Villa Park or Roberto Firmino's at Selhurst Park. And you think about the fact that Liverpool have had three, on average, six, six foot four plus players taken out the side. Um, for when they're attacking set pieces, as an example, what does that do? You know, how how, yeah. how does that make it a lot easier for the oppositions to set against them? It just nullifies another threat. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one actually, because there's a game last season, um, one of the kind of forgotten games because it was a bit of a nothing, when they beat Brighton two one at Anfield, and I actually think the pattern of the game and how they played is really not that different to when they lost to Brighton a couple of weeks ago at Anfield. The difference was that day Liverpool scored two headers from from Van Dijk basically just nodding in, you know, both free kicks or one of them was a corner from Trent. 
Mm. Brilliant deliveries, two headers. They didn't create a whole, a whole amount from open play. In fact, Brighton, I remember watching that game thinking that they, for large spells, actually probably were a better team. And then obviously Allison was a rush of blood to the head, gets sent off and they score from the free kick and, and ends up being a bit of a nervy one towards the end. But you're you're absolutely right in, in terms of, of set pieces. Um, now it, it almost feels like whenever Liverpool get a corner, it might as well just be a goal kick to the opposition because you just can't see. I think the last time Liverpool did score from a corner was Firmino against Spurs way back in sort of early early December time. And now it's just, you're looking at basically Kabak, who obviously hasn't scored for Liverpool yet. Matt Phillips hasn't scored for Liverpool yet. And then basically it's it's smaller players who play further up the pitch, Wijnaldum, Firmino, who occasionally get the odd header, um, but are hardly kind of, you can't expect them to out-jump six foot five-inch centre-backs every game. And, and these are defined margins that last season, I think because Liverpool accumulated that many points and it was, they said, 26 wins and a draw from the first 27 games last season, it gets, I think, a bit overlooked at how kind of, if I say mediocre, it sounds like a criticism, but how unremarkable a lot of those performances were. But they just were so decisive in key moments. You know, there are other games that stick out to me. Um like Norwich away just kind of around this time last year where they were really quite poor on the day Liverpool and then Mane just comes off the bench and the first chance he gets brings it down off his chest and, and smacks it in the bottom corner. Um, does the, again, Wolves at home just after Christmas when it's Mane just takes down a long ball. I think Alana chests it down. It's a really nice assist in the end and there's the VAR decision goes in our favour that day. But there's so many wins you could point towards last season where Liverpool weren't creating an abundance of chances and weren't exactly relentless as an attacking force. But the huge difference to this season is, one, you could bank on Liverpool to keep a clean sheet and close a game out at the back. And two, when the chances did fall their way, they were taking them. And that psychologically is just completely different now. I think, as Matt said there, last season, you go into the final 15 minutes, even Liverpool won one goal down like Villa Park, or if it's level, you felt like they were going to score. Whereas now... The amount of games recently where I've been working for us and we, we've conceded early on. I remember the Southampton game when Ing scores two minutes, Richarlison two minutes the other day. It, you can almost just sit down and start writing your post-match piece as if they're going to lose 1-0 because the players themselves don't look like they believe they've got it in themselves to kind of haul, them, haul their way back into the game. Yep. Um, okay, we'll leave it there. That's been this week's Liverpool.com podcast. Huge thanks to Matt. A huge thanks to Joel. Uh, we'll be back next week. Take care, everyone, and see you then. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.